Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome Peter Mandeville to the show today to talk about his book, Islam and Politics. Peter Mandeville is Professor of International Affairs at the SCAR School of Policy and Government at George Mason University and a senior visiting expert at the U.S. Institute of Peace. His most recent book is Wahhabism and the World, Understanding Saudi Arabia's Growing Influence on Islam. Peter Mandeville, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Renee. It's great to be with you today. Peter uh, I'd like to start off by asking the guest to tell us a little something about himself. Who or what uh, were significant influences in your intellectual life? Sure. So my lifelong interest in Islam as a religion is a function of my own biography. I was born and raised in the Middle East, um, the third generation of my family um, to live and work in Saudi Arabia specifically. So I grew up in a uh, country in which Islam and, and a very particular form of Islam is essentially the ambient culture. It was, it's around you at all times. And for me, this was sort of the, the, the norm. Um, and this just instilled in me, I think, a deep interest in the role that religion plays in structuring people's lives and society. Um, when I eventually left uh, Saudi Arabia to move to the United Kingdom as a student, I then began to encounter other forms of Islam, other ways of being Muslim, if you will. And that then got me very interested in the ways in which different societies, different cultures, different communities um, shape the way that people think about, engage, and practice their r religion. And so that comparative study of um, uh, Islam, and particularly its social and political manifestations at a global level, um, you, you know, became what is essentially the primary focus of my research and my academic career. Islam and politics covers a very wide span of history and geography. Uh, but for this conversation, let's focus on modern times and mostly the Middle East. Can you begin by giving us a very brief outline of the dramatic shift in the Muslim world after World War I, when new states were formed and nationalism vied with Islam in the Middle East, and Turkey instituted radical modernization and westernization? 
Yeah, it's it's actually a great moment to start with because um, it's a it's a, a perfect spot to focus on to understand how what we call today political Islam or Islamism emerged as a project. Um, at the end of World War One, of course, uh, we saw the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, um, which uh, had ruled and controlled most of what we think of today as the modern Middle East. Um, the various states that emerged out of that breakup um, then pursued their own courses of political independence, um, with many of those early governments focused on the challenge of modernization and development. Um, and, and it's that it's that process of modern state creation um, and society's reaction to it that was the crucible in which the thing we call political Islam formed. Um, a, a key, a key sort of focus date here is 1928 in Egypt, which was when we had the formation of the movement that we know today as the Muslim Brotherhood, which emerged largely as a response uh, by a group of intellectuals and educators, a response to their concern that the process of uh, building a modern Egypt may lead Egyptians to focus too much on uh, development, secularism, being modern in ways that would l- cause them to lose touch with their culture and more specifically religion as a major source of values and ethics um, and morality. Um, and so the Muslim Brotherhood began life initially as a movement that was trying to keep Islam central in all aspects of their lives. Very quickly, however, uh, it, it grew not just in popularity and scope, um, but also it, it changed its focus to political work and more specifically the idea that the best way to ensure the centrality of Islam in modern life is to eventually create a political order, a state, uh, whose specific forms, whose laws were directly derived from Islam. And, and from that vision, I think we, we get a nice kind of encapsulation of how we should think about political Islam as, as a project, as a political project. That is the, the, the effort to create a, uh, a political order, more specifically a state, um, whose uh, system, whose laws, um, uh, re- reflect directly the uh, teachings and requirements of Islam. Now, some of the key principles of the movement um, are are expressed differently in the book than the way you express them now. Particularly, um, the idea of okay, the superiority of Islam compared to any other political system. Well. Everybody thinks their political system is best, so sure. we'll 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 set that aside. Uh, of more troubling is the idea that uh, inequality is the natural order of things. So, according to the views of the Muslim Brotherhood, both then and now, um, what would like life be like for, say, women or non-Muslims in that framework? So you're absolutely right that that part of the early political discourse of a group like the Muslim Brotherhood is that that um, 
not 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 only is Islam the 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 correct religion, um, which you know any any believer in religion you know tends to center their own faith system, but more specifically, I think the Brotherhood at that time its leaders were aware that they were operating in a kind of teeming marketplace of of ideas and options that the political elites of newly independent post-colonial states were evaluating and assessing. There, there, there were socialist options, there were capitalist options, there were fascist options. Um, and so one of the things that the Brotherhood it, it, it interestingly tried to do, which, which I explain in the book, is to kind of offer Islam as the ultimate and superior synthesis of aspects of all of those. What they basically tried to say is that, you know, there, there, there are certain good features to each of these different ideological systems, but what makes Islam the best is that it, it is, you know, first of all, it's, it's, it's correct, it's true as a religious system, but it also has within it all of the best that these other ideological um, options have to, to, to offer. And so, you know, there, there is certainly, with respect to the, the questions you raised about um, equality, um, there is certainly a recognition in Islam that, um, you, you know, that, that, that inequalities exist in society as part of a n- natural order. And this is I- I- interesting because it, it's, a, it's a sort of initial starting point that has made various manifestations of political Islam quite compatible with, with, for example, capitalism and the embrace of market capitalism, which also starts from an observation that inequalities are, are a common, you know, and, and endemic aspect of, of uh, society. When, when it comes to, for example, questions around um, minority groups in society and w- women, it, it is absolutely the case that groups like the Brotherhood early on and up to this day um, you know, will very confidently and openly say that they, um, you know, seek to uphold the rights of women and minorities. And, you know, what, what becomes challenging there when, when our reference point is internationally accepted human rights standards is that for, for many of the Brotherhood's leaders, um, and, and not just the Brotherhood here, you know, the, the, the leaders and intellectuals, particularly on the conservative side of most modern Islamist movements, their their reference point for talking about the the idea of women and minorities having rights is not the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Their reference point is Sharia law, I- I- Islamic law, and their more specifically their particular interpretation of it, which they see as. Um, establishing the idea that you know men and women both have rights, but they have rights within different spheres that are governed and dictated by the requirements of religion. And then here we see entering into the picture, you know, some of the conventional um, boundaries that we associate with patriarchy all over the world, where 
the, the rights of women exist primarily in the realm of the family and the home, and the rights of men uh, accrue primarily in the public realm uh, with the idea that, that men um, you know, have, uh, are in, in, entitled to certain kinds of roles. Um, and depending on what, what interpretation of Islam we're talking about, this has an impact on things like family status law and, and inheritance and issues like that. Right. Now, um, the Muslim Brotherhood was sort of the baseline in the 20th century. Later on, um, the most influential theorist, and who still is for today's Islamists, is uh, Saeed Qutb. How do you pronounce that? Saeed Qutb. Saeed Qutb. Yeah. Okay. He was in the 1950s. Yes. Uh, and he moved the needle uh, from the idea of social transformation via Sharia law and uh, the and the message of Islam to armed struggle or jihad. Yes. T- tell us about how that happened and why that was picked up in a popular way. So the the journey and career of the Muslim Brotherhood of a movement is is extensive and diverse. Right, it begins life as I mentioned as primarily a social and religious movement. It it becomes political, um, but but not political in a way that is initially directly challenging the, the legitimacy or the authority of the Egyptian state. Um, however, in the 1950s, you have a fairly significant rift, a cleavage that emerges within the Brotherhood itself between one camp that uh, essentially argues that the you know it's not the job of the m- movement to um, uh, 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 compel the creation of an Islamic political order through capturing state power. Their argument was that you will only achieve an enduring and genuine Islamic political order if it happens in a bottom-up, sort of grassroots-up type method. Therefore, in their view, uh, the work of the Muslim Brotherhood should properly be devoted to education, the task of tarbiya, as we would say in Arabic. Um, and, And the idea there is that over time, as people come to learn about the teachings of their religion and the advantages of having a political system that is directly derived from religion, then over time they will move towards that approach. Uh, and once the people do so en masse, they will naturally give rise to an Islamic state. And that's the most enduring and sustainable way of creating that project. Said Khutub belonged to a wing of the movement that had become convinced that the secular orientation of Egypt's leaders at the time, particularly the president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, was such that he, would, he, Nasser, would never make space for or allow an Islamic society or political order to arrive. Uh, Said Qutb believed that the policies and worldview Rather, I think it's more accurate to say the worldview of Egypt's modern political leaders and, you know, exemplified by Nasser himself, represented a con- condition that uh, Said 
Qutb famously described as a condition of jahiliya. This is an Arabic term that refers to the idea of ig- ignorance and more specifically the period of time prior to the advent of Islam in Arabia in the 7th century. So in Qutb's worldview, um, the e- modern Egyptian state was, was had captured Egyptian society in the state of pre-Islamic ignorance or jahiliya, and the task of the Muslim Brotherhood properly, as he understood it, was to um, use essentially any means necessary up to and including direct confrontation with the state by violent means, if necessary, uh, to um, uh, compel the creation of a proper Islamic state um, as a understood. Now, uh, he, you know, was immediately detected by the state as an opposition uh, figure, uh, jailed on numerous occasions, and eventually in the 1960s, uh, put put to death um, as part of a broad-based and comprehensive crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood. And this period through the late 1960s um, into the early uh, 70s, the Brotherhood is effectively neutralized. It's, it's been, it's, it gets removed from Egyptian society as a political force. When it then reemerges in the 1970s, and interestingly, it does so uh, at the behest of uh, and and in response to an invitation from Egypt's new president, Anwar Sadat, who was keen to emphasize and burnish his religious credentials in order to um, distinguish himself from the previous president, his previous boss. One of the things that Nasser did was to reach out to that more moderate faction of the Brotherhood, or what remained of it the, that, that, that I described earlier, and to basically say to them, hey, look, I'm willing to give you space to come back out and operate in Egyptian society, but you will only be allowed to do so if you commit to staying away from political activity and you must renounce violence. Um, And, you know, based on the orientation of that moderate camp within the Brotherhood, those guys were only too happy to take that uh, bargain. This, however, set off a new uh, rivalry, a factionalization within what remained of the Brotherhood, because there were still quite a few followers of Said Qutb around, even if they'd been sort of driven underground. They then broke away and renounced ties to this kind of mainstream center block within the Brotherhood, the one that had sort of taken Sadat's bargain to come back out into the open. Uh, This kind of more radical faction split away, began to speak of and regard the kind of mainstream Brotherhood as traitors. And they then set up their own radical, violent splinter movements in the 1970s that were whose whose goal was to essentially continue that early work of Said Qutb and that more militant confrontational approach. And these violent splinter groups that broke away from the Brotherhood in the 1970s um, eventually evolved into. Um, uh, militant movements like Al Islamiyah, the Islamic group, uh, whose one-time leader Ayman al-Zawahiri is, of course, today the leader of Al Qaeda. And so, when you hear people talk about the idea that groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS have some connection to the Brotherhood, that that is indeed 
correct. But their, their genealogy, if you will, traces back through that radical splinter group that emerged from the main block of the Brotherhood in the 1970s. So their inspiration was really more Qutub, sorry, Qutub. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. And that continues to be the case. It does. It, it, it does to, to, to a point where, um, uh, you know, the, the, the El, 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 El Qaeda and ISIS, um, you know, view the br- br- Brotherhood as, um, as having compromised. Um, they, they view the Brotherhood of, of having betrayed true Islamism as they understand it by being willing to cooperate with the state, to accommodate themselves to the requirements of the Egyptian state, just staying with the case of Egypt for now. They regard the, 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 the kind of centrist mainstream brotherhood tendency as having betrayed the cause by accepting the modern Westphalian state as a legitimate form of politics. Uh, Groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, as we know, are focused on the idea of the eventual establishment or reestablishment of a distinctly uh, transnational and Islamic uh, form of polity known as the the caliphate or khilafa, um, and and so uh, you know groups you know a gr- ISIS you know at the height of its influence in in like 2015 de- dedicated an entire issue of its magazine uh, to talking about the 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 crimes and the wrongheadedness of the Muslim Brotherhood. So while there are certain ideological genealogical uh, points of overlap and some common DNA between the groups, um, you know, they are today fairly ardent political foes. Are there any countries today that you would consider to be well-functioning Islamist states? Well, it's interesting because your, your question gives us the opportunity to draw a distinction between a number of countries in the world today that at various points in the 20th century uh, announced themselves to the world as Islamic states, claiming that their political system, their constitution is derived directly from Islam. And the the most most well-known examples there um, are of course uh, 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 Saudi Arabia, established in 1926, um, Pakistan, which announced itself as an Islamic state in the subcontinent of India, particularly a national homeland for the Muslims of the Indian subcontinent uh, in the late 1940s, and of course, very famously, Iran in the aftermath of the uh, 1979 revolution in that country. Now, in all of those cases, the, the Islamic nature of the state was not one that came about through um, popular uh, political activity. The case of Iran is kind of complicated because obviously the 1979 revolution was a very broad-based and popular revolution. I don't think that the vast majority of Iranians participating in it, however, understood themselves to be signing up for the political system that Khomeini subsequently put in place. Um, and so 
you know, what we have then are a series of, of, of countries, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iran, that have sought to operate as Islamic states and distinguish themselves from other types of political systems by their Islamic n- nature. And we can talk about, you know, the the sort of challenges and limitations of that approach. When you ask about, you know, whether we have states that are functioning Islamist states, um, you know, my mind immediately goes to the question of those countries where Islamist political parties have tried to offer themselves to the electorate as an option. You know, cases where, 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 where Islamist groups have tried to come to power through the ballot box. Um, and we, we have a very interesting history there, starting in the early 1990s, uh, when in Algeria you almost had an Islamist party win a landslide popular election, only to see that election annulled uh, by that country's military who were deathly frightened of what it might mean if, if an Islamist party came to power. More recently, however, what we've seen is a trend whereby from the 19, late 90s onwards, many Islamist parties became actually fairly normalized, regular political actors in the uh, political systems of their respective countries, you know, entering parliament when elected and leaving parliament when they lost their elections. And so in countries like Jordan and Yemen and Morocco, um, the Islamist parties kind of became a standard part of the political landscape. I think it's really the events in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings, the Arab Spring, as it's often called, in 2010 and 2011, when you saw these dramatic popular revolutions in countries like Egypt and Tunisia that saw long-standing dictators fall from power uh, and meaningful democratic elections happen for the first time in those countries. Um, And unsurprisingly, um, Islamist parties did very well, at least initially, with a political party connected to the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power in Egypt, the Nahda party in Tunisia basically Tunisia's mainstream Islamist party coming to power um, in that country. Uh, in the years that followed, for a variety of complicated reasons that you know we can certainly get, get into, those Islamist parties, the political fortunes of those Islamist parties took a sharp downturn. Um, and this was then accompanied by a trend in the Middle East whereby several major powers in the region, uh, most notably Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, use their political influence and their wealth to embark on an effort to essentially eradicate the Muslim Brotherhood trend as a social and political force in the Middle East, seeing in it potentially a direct threat to the security uh, and viability of their own regimes. They, they watched Islamists become very popular in countries around the region after the Arab Spring and worried that that same uh, wind could blow across their own t- territory and possibly remove them from power. And so what this has landed in, what this has landed us in now, Renee, is a state of affairs where um, it's hard to identify a country in the Middle East where Islamists um, are uh, in a strong position politically. Turkey is an interesting case because while the current president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, um, 
has been a lifelong Islamist. Um, he has steadfastly refused the Islamist label as an appropriate description of the AK party that he founded and has led. Um, and and the sort of you know the 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 jury is out on the extent to which someone like Erdogan, you know, should be appropriately regarded as an Islamist today. Although it is clearly the case that he has lended political support to Islamists and other parts of the region. And it appears that most of the failed states in the region, which are a lot of states. Um, were brought down, at least in part, if, if not totally, by the involvement, interference, or violence of the Islamists. I'm thinking of Lebanon and, uh, well, Turkey, which was once a highly secular state not so many decades ago, now has uh, more academics and journal journalists in jail than anywhere else in the world. Um, in fact, right now, as I'm sure you know, there's a journalist who faces up to 11 years in jail for insulting uh, President Erdogan, uh, and that only by implication. So, um, and I, of course, there's Syria, there's Iraq. Uh, we'll 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 get to them. Uh, but I, I I believe I understand what you pointed out, which is there are Islamist parties that function inside of, as part of a state that is fully or somewhat democratic uh, and, and, uh, and behaves proper, appropriately, right? Well, right. They, they, they behave according to the sort of norms of democratic politics in the sense that they you know, they, they contest elections fairly. They offer themselves as, as options to an electorate. And when they win, they go in and they function in parliaments and other political institutions um, according to the norms and laws, you know, that are, that, that are constitutionally set. And then when they lose, they, they, they go back out. Um, you know, when, when, when it's, it's interesting when, that those when that Algerian group, um, the the uh, uh, FIS, the Front Islamique du Salut, the Islamic Salvation Front, was poised to win the um, Algerian election in 1991. Um, the United States government, ultimately reflecting on those events, said very famously that it was probably good that the Algerian military annulled that election because if they hadn't, then it would have been a case of one man, one vote, one time. And that, that sort of catchphrase became essentially a bumper sticker description of the U.S. government's policy towards Islamist parties for the better part of the next 30 years. And, and it contains within it this idea that, you know, Islamists don't genuinely believe in democratic norms. Rather, they've instrumentally adopted democratic methods in order to get into political power. And once they do, they will dismantle democracy in order to make sure that they can never be voted out of power. Um, and do you and, and believe so, that was not that is not the case? It, well, n- well, we have subsequently a very clear track record of Islamist parties behaving 
in 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 compliance with d- democratic norms in the sense of you know in Morocco in Jordan in e- Yemen um, m- members of the branches of the Muslim Brotherhood in those countries um, you know stand for election they win they they get into power they they exit um, now in none of those countries have they actually captured the state you know become the government with the exception of Morocco in Interestingly, but but Morocco is curious because even though that country's mainstream Islamist party, the Justice and Development Party, was until fairly recently the largest party in parliament, um, controlled many of the ministries, the prime minister was from that party, the way that politics is wired in Morocco means that at the end of the day, it's the king, it's the palace that ultimately calls the shots um, politically. But in a country like Tunisia, we have seen the Islamist party not just be elected to, to power, but voluntarily relinquish power once it became clear that the political polarization that had emerged around them was threatening the very fabric of uh, society. So, I mean, I can kind of understand where... The concerns that the U.S. government had back in the 1990s, um, just because there was very little track record at that point of what happens when Islamists um, participate in, in in politics. But the kind of subsequent track record that we've seen, I think, shows that this sort of one man, one vote, one time um, presumption um, is, is not quite an accurate account of what happens when Islamists participate in politics. So why do you think that after the Islamists were successful during what was called the Arab Spring, that success didn't last? So I think this varies by country. In in Egypt, um, I would put the blame first and foremost at the feet of the political party linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, the Freedom and Justice Party, um, and the presidency of Dr. Mohammed, the, the late Dr. Mohammed Morsi, lifelong Muslim Brotherhood member, um, and, and that, you know, that party's um, uh, a candidate to be president. Um, the Brotherhood, after the Egyptian revolution in 2011, ruled the country in ways that I think just revealed them to be complete amateurs. Um, at the actual at meeting the actual challenges of g- governance, the, the the Brotherhood was great at you know being an opposition movement that could trade in catchy slogans like Islam is the solution. Right, it's easy to sort of sit on the sidelines and shout at the incumbent uh, g- g- government with with your slogans, but it's a totally different thing to actually have to govern the country and deal with its enormous challenges, and and they just absolutely failed to do so in a monumental way. And what's interesting is that I think their downfall was not so much in their Islamistness, if I can put it that way. They didn't actually do much when they were in power that was recognizably Islamic or Islamist in nature. It was just that in the aftermath of a broad-based popular revolution like Egypt has seen, you would think that the way to run the country is to reach out to all groups in society, try and create a space of consensus um, that would allow 
people from different walks of life, from different ideological viewpoints to feel that they have voice, to feel that they have a stake in working collaboratively to help the country go through this transition. But they, they utterly failed to do that. They, they, they ruled, they, they sort of approached it as a winner takes all, you know, we've won the parliament and so it's going to be our way. They did very little in the way of reaching out to other groups, um, and, and so this just kind of led to a repolarization of Egyptian society such that, you know, within a year of their coming into power, you were having mass popular protests against them that were on a very similar scale to the protests that had led to the downfall of Hosni Mubarak just a couple of years before. And of course, that culminated in a military coup in 2013. In Tunisia, however, it was a rather different kind of story. Because when the Islamists of Tunisia, the Nahda party, which did win that country's um, uh, constitutional uh, election that, that occurred a few years, sorry, a few months after the re- revolution, when, when they took the lead and more specifically led the process of designing a new constitution for the country, they behaved very differently from the Brotherhood in e- e- Egypt. They didn't take this my way or the highway approach. Instead, as, that, as Tunisia wrote its new constitution, when they arrived at points of disagreement and sticking points, rather than the Islamists just kind of ramming their preferences through and moving forward, they would pause and work through the sticking point to arrive at a formulation or approach that everyone felt at least minimally comf- comfortable with before moving on. So it meant that the Egypt, the Tunisian constitutional process dragged on for quite some time, but at the end of it, you had a document that that diverse groups from across the political spectrum in that country felt that they had a, 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 a stake in. And this is fascinating because it shows that the way that Islamists behave um, vary considerably from context to context and depends very much on different factors uh, in the uh, the kind of, you know, the political systems and political environments of those countries. So a lot of Islamist behavior seems to be context specific. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, you explained uh, the basic theoretical differences early on between um, Muslim Brotherhood and, and other Islamists as a difference between those who wanted to take over the state and those who prefer a caliphate, a non-state but territorial 
dominance. Now, up until now, we've been talking about Muslim-majority countries. What role does Islamism, Islamism play in minority Muslim countries in which Muslims are a minority? How does it see itself? What, what's its goal? Yeah, it's a fascinating question because if the kind of if the defining paradigm paradigm of modern Islamism is the idea that the political system and legal foundations of a given state should be based on Islam, um, that doesn't seem like a realistic prospect in a country in which the majority of the population is not Muslim. So, in those countries. Um, uh, and, you know, there are any number of examples here from uh, the Indian subcontinent, like India itself, where, um, where the dominant strain of Islamist ideology uh, has been the one linked with the early 20th century activist intellectual Sayyid Abu Ala Maududi, who founded a political movement and party known as the Jamaati Islami. And that Jamaati Islami formation is sort of the hub of South Asian I- I- Islam. And it exists in all of the major countries of South Asia. So two of those countries, Pakistan and Bangladesh, are Muslim-majority countries, and there the Jamaat-e-Islami has operated in ways that look fairly similar to the Muslim Brotherhood in the Middle East. And, and, and indeed, the kind of basic ideological compass points of those two major um, formations of modern Islam uh, are very s- similar. In other words, in Bangladesh and Pakistan, the Jamaati Islami groups have focused on how to create a political order in a state that is more Islamic in nature, based on their understanding of what that means. In India, conversely, where you have a huge, just given the size of population, you have an enormous. Um, I think when we looked at the at the last Pew. The demographics the, the studies, India, um, you know, has the third largest number of Muslims in the entire world. And soon, uh, given demographic trends, will have the second largest, numerically speaking, number of Muslims. There's still uh, a distinct minority compared to the majority Hindu population. And so in a country like India, what the Jamaat-e-Islami project has looked like has been one of focusing on um, trying to ensure the security and autonomy of Muslims and the rights of Muslims vis-a-vis the majority population. Um, We can also talk about what happens when um, uh, Islamist movements and projects transplant themselves through processes of post-colonial migration from the Middle East and South Asia to uh, Europe and indeed even North America um, from the 1960s and and 70s. And, you know, this is absolutely something that happened, uh, whereby if you look at a country, one that I'm very familiar with, the the United uh, Kingdom, you know, some of the earliest organizations for Muslim immigrants in that country 
had connections and ties to or had their roots in the Islamist groups and movements in South Asia and the Middle East that we've just been talking about. But again, it, it doesn't it didn't make any sense for them to approach um, uh, Islam and Britain as a project of turning Britain into an Islamic state. That's not to say that there aren't groups that emerged in the UK later that precisely had that agenda in mind. And, you know, again, these would be groups that um, were more in- interested in and beholden to the Said Qutb type worldview. So that did exist in British Islam, but it's a kind of minority, minority, but vocal fringe. The kind of mainstream expression of these Islamist legacy movements in a country like the UK um, was kind of, again, focused on the idea that Muslims, you know, need to be wary of too much integration into British society um, and that they need to sort of privilege their Muslim identity. And, and, And so while you know, these movements in diaspora, if I can put it that way, in minority contexts, didn't focus on direct challenge or confrontation with, say, the British state. Um, I think it is fair to say that some of them did have an impact on the the forces and pressures around the ability of Muslim communities to integrate into British society. In your at, at least. Section- at least if I can Sorry. add, at least in yes, the early, please. if I can just add, the, the, this was very much the early generation. Um, as you know, so these were the the you know the the Muslim communities that in that first generation had just recently moved from South Asia, the Middle East to, to the UK. Once you had a second and now a third generation of British Muslims, those who were born and raised in the UK, who kind of naturally understood Britain to be their home, that, you know, young people that were more comfortable with British norms, British idioms of popular culture than the cultural reference points of their parents, you saw quite a sea change there. And so, you know, what British Islam looks like today and the kinds of questions and issues that young British Muslims deal with today are are so very different from the approaches of their parents and grandparents. Uh, You're talking about British Muslims who are Islamic, but not necessarily Islamists. So, so yeah, I think I think we have to keep them separate because uh, they they seem to have two different outlooks. Except though, except Renee, though that that um, I think that that it, to me, what's been fascinating to do in my work is to kind of trace this generational change. Um, uh, because within that that crucial second generation of British Muslims, what you saw was a you know young sort of teenager, early twenties something, you know young Muslim who maybe came up in their social formation and social consciousness in groups and organizations tied to Islamism of a sort. That was like their initial reference point, but who, as they became older, as they matured, began to realize that this thing called Islamism wasn't actually offering them any solutions to 
the day-to-day problems that they faced. Um, And so they kind of abandoned that approach and went in search of other ways of being Muslim. And so I think watching that process, I guess you might call call it a de-Islamistization of (laughs) diaspora Islam in Western Europe and North America is a fascinating way to understand how those communities have evolved over time. In your section on Hamas, the Islamist terrorist organization that controls Gaza, you write, and I quote, terrorism is a tactic rather than an ideology. Uh, That was a surprising statement to me, uh, since uh, among many other scholars, Michael Walzer, one of America's foremost political thinkers, disagrees. Uh, He notes that Notwithstanding that these groups provide social benefits, terrorists in general are elitists who claim to be acting on behalf of the people, but they don't bring the people along. And of course, we've seen over and over again in history, recent history, that when it happens that terrorists do get power and govern, they become very harsh authoritarian leaders. What, what's your response to that? Well, I, I still think the basic point that terrorism describes a tactic rather than an ideology holds true. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what the content of terrorism as an ideology is. Um, I, can, I can, you know, you can point to numerous examples historically of groups of very different ideological orientations from the far left to the far right that have employed terrorism as a method to achieve their political goals. But the actual content of those political goals tend to be driven by um, uh, uh, different kinds of ideological content and reference points. With with respect to Hamas, for example, um, unquestionably this is a terrorist group that that has employed terrorism quite readily um, as a, a method. Its ideological reference point, however, you know, it began life as the the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. So its yes. ultimate its ultimate ideological content comes from that that Brotherhood idea of seeking to establish an Islamic state. So um, while it's certainly the case that um, groups that have employed terrorism that come to power um, often govern in a fairly exclusionary fashion, um, I I don't know that that means that any group that has employed terrorism is is unable to participate in democratic politics. I mean, we have, for example, in the very complex case of Northern Ireland, you know, the, the, the IRA was a terrorist group. They employed terrorism as a tactic. But individuals that were supportive of their use of terrorism in the 1970s, um, once certain structural features of the conflict changed, were able to m- you know, ad- adopt d- d- democratic norms of a way of doing politics. So I'm not sure that the employment of terrorism as a tactic at certain points of a conflict necessarily means that it's then impossible for those that have used terrorism to um, b- behave in different ways later in politics. 
Well, I'm glad you brought up a European example, uh, because as we speak today, March 3rd, uh, all eyes are on Europe uh, and uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Nevertheless, uh, most wars on the planet in this time period uh, are civil wars, and most of those wars are between Muslims and Muslims, Muslims fighting one another. H how do you explain that? Well, I mean, my departing point for explaining any conflict is not to ask what is the religious orientation of the part participants. It's to uh, go to the specific country context in question and to investigate where the seeds of that conflict began. Um, and in some cases, you may find that there appear to be religious dimensions to the origins of the conflict. In other cases, you may find that the conflicts are really best described as competitions for control of power and territory that happen to break out across religious demographic lines, which means that religion becomes usable as a resource to identify the two sides and to harden and sharpen people's identities. Again, you know, so if, if I want to understand what, you know, you'd mentioned Iraq earlier, um, you know, when I try to understand sectarianism in Iraq right now, I don't think it's helpful to kind of say, oh, you know, this is just ancient hatred between Sunni and Shia Muslims. They'll never, they've been killing each other forever. They'll never be able to put those differences aside. And, you know, to me, that's kind of a lazy excuse that means that you don't have to actually address and deal with the root sources of the conflict. For me, the best reference point for understanding sectarianism in Iraq today is, again, Northern Ireland. Because, again, remember, in Northern Ireland, we had you know, n nominally speaking, Catholics and Protestants killing each other. Now, does anybody really think that the conflict in Northern Ireland was a conflict over ancient hatreds and theological differences? Of course not. It was a conflict over control of power, money, and territory. Likewise, the, the what we describe in sectarianism and Iraq over the last you know, frankly, since the end of the Ottoman Empire, um, you know, the, the sectarianism we describe there, I think, is actually more accurately viewed in, in the same paradigm as Northern Ireland. It's about struggles between different groups to control state power, uh, financial and economic resources and territory that that break down along religious demographic lines and which therefore lead the religious dimensions of the conflict to be more prominent and to be usable, to, to, to be a form of political identity that can be mobilized around um, in order to harden and sharpen images of who's on which side, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Uh, Peter, your your latest brand new book is called uh, Wahhabism and the World, Understanding Saudi Arabia's Growing Influence on Islam. Why was it important to you to focus on Saudi Arabia? So, you know, as I mentioned to you, Renee, at the beginning of our conversation, I, this is a country that I was born and raised in. My, my family's had a, you know, long time, three ge generation relationship with the kingdom. Um, and I grew up in you know, of hearing accounts of how Saudi Arabia was exporting the kind of radical 
brand of Wahhabi Islam that is sort of indigenous to, to, to its territory through petrodollar wealth to the rest of the world. And that was just distorting and, and kind of, you know, er- eradicating more moderate forms of, of I- Islam. Um, and I, you know, I didn't really know what to make of these claims when I first began to hear them, they tended to be made by people who I knew to be political enemies of Saudi Arabia. And so I was somewhat skeptical of them. That said, as I started to do more and more research of my own, um, you know, as I've mentioned to you, it's it's kind of the comparative study of political expressions of Islam globally that, that has been my main interest. So, you know, as I began to travel to places like South Asia, Southeast Asia, West Africa, everywhere I went, I, I started to hear among those that I was speaking with in Muslim communities, some version of a story that kind of basically went like this. You know, we used to do Islam this way here, but then the Saudi money started to arrive and things began to change. And and I reached a point where this pattern of hearing some version of that um, came to be, you know, so common in my work that I just thought, look, th- this this needs to be properly explored because this debate about Saudi Arabia's export of Wahhabism, while we've been having it for decades. It's largely been a fairly politicized conversation that tends to happen at extremes. Like either people are arguing that Saudi Arabia's export of Wahhabism is the root of all bad things, including perhaps you know the origins of Al Qaeda and ISIS, or on the other extreme, they say no, you know, there's nothing. You know, it's conservative religion, but there's nothing particularly problematic about it. Um, I, I don't think that either of those two portraits is quite correct, and so I wanted to kind of do a comprehensive, systematic examination of the birth, the origins, the evolution, and the impact of what I call Saudi religious transnationalism around the world. And so that's why I embarked on this project, which is not, it's, the book is not written by me, it's an edited volume. So what I've done is I've identified scholars from around the world who have looked in depth at the impact of Saudi religious transnationalism in their respective country contexts and invited them to write uh, chapters for the book that explain what Saudi Arabia's religious influence has been in their particular setting. And we kind of put that all together and then I kind of write a chapeau overview of the thing. And what we get then is, uh, and I'm thrilled and, and, and so proud of this, the, the first comprehensive academic treatment of this question that, that has ever been published. Well, I wish you good luck with its sales and uh, and spreading your understand you and your colleagues' understanding of uh, of a powerful force in the world. Uh, finally, Peter, what can you tell us about the current state of Al Qaeda and the global jihad's outreach to the West? Um, so I'm 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 in that camp of observers of contemporary Salafi jihadi movements. And this sort of, that's, that's the broad kind of categorization that I put groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS in. Um, I'm very skeptical of any time that we declared that, oh, these groups have been defeated. Um, 
you know, we saw this at great peril uh, when we thought the Islamic State, in, when the United States declared that the Islamic State in Iraq, headed by Abu Musab al-Qawi, you know, had been de- 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 defeated in the, you know, around 2008. Because, you know, six years later, we saw that movement come back, seize huge amounts of territory in Syria and, and Iraq and become ISIS. Um, Al-Qaeda uh, as well, while it's certainly on a back foot, it is still out there. It's still a force to be reckoned with. And so I think that these groups will continue to exist and will continue to exert some um, uh, attractive force on the political imaginations of uh, very small n- numbers of Muslims in different s- settings, but but I think they'll consider they'll continue to be out there, and they will con- continue to identify permissive environments in which they can operate. Right? The, these groups prey on countries that are fragile and failed states, where there are disgruntled populations that feel politically disenfranchised, territories that are loosely. Um, or poorly g- g- governed that give them space to operate and they set up shop there. And so um, I expect that we will continue to see waves of this kind of Salafi jihadi a- a- activity type embodied by Al-Qaeda and ISIS um, uh, be a feature of the political and security landscape of the M- Middle East and other regions as well. Well, that's a, a sobering thought but it does ring true. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today and sharing your deep insights. Thanks so much, Renee. It's, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can subscribe to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas wherever you find your podcasts. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.